Welcome to our exchanges at Goldman Sachs Markets Update for May 1st. Each week, we check in with leaders across the firm to get their quick take on what they're watching in markets. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. And today's repeat guest is Alex Blanchard, Global Head of Repo Trading for our Global Markets Division. Welcome back to the program, Alex. Thanks for having me, Jake. It's a real pleasure. So start by broadly describing sentiment uh, in markets right now, what you're hearing from the clients you're talking to. Yeah, I would say, you know, from when we last spoke, sentiment certainly across the, the client base that I interact with has, has improved drastically. You know, if we think back to you know where we were in the middle of March, you had a, a confluence of extraordinarily large uh, amount of volatility, you know, a huge amount of uncertainty driving that, along with, you know, significant dislocations in the, the global funding complex. Since then, we've had you know massive response from from the global central banks, both in terms of size and also speed. I think you know important to to mention the the speed with which, which we've kind of gotten to where we've gotten to, both in terms of traditional monetary policy response as well as non traditional monetary policy response. And I think it's fair to say that perhaps the global central bank has learned from previous experience. And so you know if we look at the the various array of, of facilities that have been implemented, notably by the Fed, but other central banks along the way. I think it's fair to say that their, their responses have, have done some way to, to fix a lot of the problem. And, and so that has, has certainly improved sentiment across the client base. You know, if I think about the, the four or five different kind of types of, of uh, clients that we interact with and the, the, the markets that they're in, you know, the, the repo market has improved substantially. Yeah, the U.S. Treasury market. I'd say there's some degree of consternation amongst the investor base. Whilst you've you've had a significant improvement in terms of liquidity and bid offer spreads have tightened a lot, you know, I think clients are now trying to work their way through the interplay between you know an ongoing fiscal response, which is going to demand a lot of issuance from the U.S. Treasury. Alongside trying to understand now where the Federal Reserve are going to go with their buybacks, you know, as, as a reminder, the Fed's initial response was to buy quote as many Treasuries as needed. Uh, they've since slowed down their purchases and will likely continue to do that. And so, what what our investors are now, a lot of the conversations we're having with our investors are, are saying, well, you know, what are the Fed likely to do in the face of of heavy fiscal supply? And then, of course. The other, the other key markets that we interact with and, and the clients that we interact with, I would say the, the commercial paper investors, the money market funds, you know, there was a period of time back there where you know, the prime money market fund industry was under real strain and it wasn't clear you know, what was going to fix the problem. The Fed have implemented a handful of, of tools with, with varying degrees of success. But what I think what's been most notable is that the industry has actually seen a wave of inflows. You know, what's driven those inflows is unclear, whether it's that, you know, people still have a lack of clarity around, you know, the, the economy. And so, you know, perhaps lower propensity to, to deploy your, your cash into, into the equity market. And so, you know, where, where absolute interest rates are very low, a you know, tendency to, to move into short-term credit. But also, interestingly, the, the prime money market funds have extended the duration of their, their, their cash deployment. And so, that's driven a very large repricing in in the uh, the spread between LIBOR and Fed funds, or you know the cost essentially of, of issuance for for corporates and, and banks. 
And then, and then finally, I'd say the one, the one part of the market that we, we watch very closely, which is still seeing some dislocations, is the mortgage market. You know, even though the basis between mortgages and U.S. Treasuries is is a you know kind of types of of where we've seen it over the last two or three years, the the pure funding spread in mortgages has actually stayed relatively elevated as compared to the funding spread that we see in Treasury repo or in in Treasury futures or in or in the CP market as I, as I just mentioned. And this seems to be driven by imbalance of, of supply and demand, driven by forbearance activity and heavy amount of, of origination. And so that's causing a lot of dislocation there. So it's something we're watching very closely. I think the final thing I would say about the conversations we're, we're having with clients is then trying to understand, you know, what else can be done. You know, I think it's it's very clear as we listen to the central bankers and as we understand ourselves what's going on to an extent across the, the global economy. There's only so much that can be done from a monetary policy perspective, but there seems to be some some question mark around whether there has been enough done by the, the global central banks whether there can be anything changed around some of the facilities that will improve some of the uh, the dislocations that we talked about. Let's go back to that point. Some of the facilities are up and running, the ones that are sort of retreads of, of last time around. Some of the facilities that are pretty creative and original haven't really been fully deployed yet. So what are investors looking for in terms of how Treasury and Fed are standing up these newer facilities? Yeah, sure. That's a great question, Jake. I, I would say you know, before coming to that specifically around the things that have, have yet to be launched, I would, I would make a couple of comments on, the, on the, the overall facility strategy and say, you know, one of the challenges that I think that has existed is to an extent the Fed have, have run a fairly similar playbook early on as they did in LA. You know, I mentioned that they were very quick to move, but they've also run a similar playbook, which is not necessarily what the market has needed. You know, if, if I say that another way, you know, in 2008, the listeners will remember the challenge that existed was, was a funding problem across the banking sector. You know, right now we have, you know, obviously a massive vast shock driven by, you know, huge volatility in the overall market and, and, and question marks around the broader economy. And when the, the response is to supply additional funding or to provide additional liabilities to the banking sector, which has been, you know, a large part of what the response has been, you know, you're placing a huge amount of reliance on the ability for banks to intermediate that that injection of, of liquidity. You know, to, to think about it a different way, you know, we've all we've all learned and got to understand the, the various binding constraints across both liquidity and, and capital. I'm talking more here about about the capital framework that, that binds banking activity, and and that's really I'd say centered on both leveraged capital and also risk based capital. And there, you know, oftentimes where it, the the various central bank facilities really do rely on on banks to consume either a unit of leveraged capital purely to borrow money from the Federal Reserve and lend it out to a client, uses a unit of balance sheet, uses a unit of leveraged capital, but also, you know, a different example would be to go into the commercial paper market, buy CP, and fund it at the primary dealer credit facility. You know, you're underwriting not just the credit risk associated with that, but you're also underwriting the risk-based capital or RWAs, which is more and more becoming the binding constraint for many. You know, what the Fed did very elegantly, in my mind, was A, to, to try and be more direct participants in the market. They did that in the treasury market. They, they're doing that in the credit market. As you mentioned, the, 
primary and secondary market uh, credit facilities. What they have launched thus far, which is which is one of my favorite tools, is from an elegance perspective, is the the money market liquidity facility. And, and what that has has allowed is to remove the capital pressure, the capital constraint that exists on the banks, but also, for want of a better word, leverage the access that banks have to their clients, have them be able to buy securities from from their their investor base to then fund at the at the MMLF. And so, yeah, you know, I would say what clients are really looking to us as the bank and dealer community, but we're also looking to the Fed is is really clarity on on the timing. We've obviously had, you know, it feels like every, you know, a new announcement every day around, you know, either a tweak to a facility or or, or a broadening of a facility. But I think, you know, what people need now is is certainty around when these facilities are going to go live. There's certainly other other tweaks that could be recommended, you know, around how banks should treat the liquidity and in inverted commas. Uh, when I say liquidity in that term, I mean like definitionally how LCR would treat some of these facilities but right now it's like you know how do how do different issuers qualify who is really defined as eligible what documentation is going to be required you know are u.s investors with a foreign parent considered eligible the, these are the kind of questions that still stand out for people so given, given that complexity and and the changing dynamics in the marketplace how are the investors you're talking to positioning themselves or, or thinking about their own positioning yeah I mean I I, I can only talk really to to the markets that I'm most focused in the in the liquid space, you know, I would say the in the treasury complex, I mentioned there's this this degree of consternation. There's definitely been, you know, as we've had this significant repricing in the treasury basis or treasury and futures markets, you've seen a, a, a significant deleveraging because the market has just been less attractive. I would say, you know, lots and lots of, of discussions with with our clients around. How to better position them and us to afford them access to scarce resource in as efficient manner as possible. So discussions with clients about you know whether it makes more sense to provide them leverage in in one wrapper versus another. You know should should they work with their prime broker? Should they work with their repo desk? Should they work through some kind of total return swap packages? That, that's one thing that the clients are spending time on. You know I think we we saw very early through the, the stresses in March, we saw more and more demand for clients to lock in longer term financing. Uh, and so much of the conversations we've, we've been having now are like, you know, where do we go from here? You know, I think I, I mentioned it a little bit before, but, um, you know, what, what really is on people's minds, and, and I think what gives our clients some degree of concern is, whilst we've seen a significant improvement in conditions and access seems to be somewhat ubiquitous, the capital position of banks is, is one that, that people are, are very, very focused on. You know, I mentioned in passing that this increasing focus on risk-based capital, and listeners will be aware that uh, you know, the Fed have, have been kind of migrating their, their capital rules away from a kind of spot capital calculation and a stressed capital calculation and merging the two together through the stressed capital buffer. That's to go live in October. And, and I think what, what's interesting is we're essentially living through or have lived through really a version of a severely adverse scenario. The levels that we've reached in, in unemployment, the levels that we've reached in equity and credit markets are certainly suggestive of 
of a lot of stress on, on the banking system and on the financial system at large. And whereas we, we've kind of experienced that, we now have to prepare ourselves as an industry for the CPAR and for the ensuing stress capital buffer rules. And it seems plausible that the banks may start to manage their capital around that. And, and where that, that concerns people like myself, who as, as an industry, the funding markets are you know, in various parts, big consumers of capital, be that through leverage or, or risk-based capital, as I mentioned, that could start to drive dislocations again. And so, you know, where we're having a lot of conversation with clients around that is what would be the markets that would come under most pressure? What are the things that clients are asking of, of their banks that are, that are most difficult and, and really trying to, to partner with the banks and dealers to get to the right place? Well, yes, yeah, definitely been a real life stress test. And, and yet banks came out of the, the first quarter, at least, relatively solid capital levels across the board. But uh, we'll see how that plays out in the next chapter. Well, what, what have you learned about, I see your Bloomberg uh, monitors in the back. Uh, what's the biggest thing you've learned about trading remotely so far? Yeah, I mean, I would say I've learned more about myself and about my team than about trading. But but working from home overall, I've heard, you know, has been incredibly educational for me. I think that the things that have been most telling is, you know, the the combination of of diligence and discipline around the people that we work, coupling that with the technology. You know, we're we're sitting here. You and I did this exact same conversation when we were apparently in the office, and we didn't. We weren't actually face to face. We were over the phone. Now we're sitting talking face to face. You know, the ability to see people face to face. I think uh, you know that has that has probably granted you know more success than some might have thought if we'd have rewound two months ago and said, "Hey, we're all about to go and work from home." You know, I think on the point of face to face communication, I think realizing how important that is in what we all do that we are in you know, a business of people and the emphasis of remaining connected is incredibly important. My, my own personal approach as it relates to that is I, you know, have the ability with this technology to have my entire global team sat next to me, essentially through, you know, iPads and Zooms and, and, and the like. And so, you know, being able to remain connected, but also just adapt is, is something that's, that's incredibly important. You know, and that that then you know ties back to our interactions with clients. One of the things we we've, we've tried to do a lot of is roundtables over Zoom. You know, we used to do and continue to do a lot of calls with clients. We obviously used to do a lot of meetings with clients, but I would say that you know these roundtables have actually given us an ability to just connect on a personal level at the same time with you know sharing professional ideas, uh, and that helps guide our you know our behavior. It helps guide our understanding. I think reinforcing process you know as a trader you know you start to develop styles you start to develop routines you know one of the great things about operating on a trading floor is stuff can happen around you and you don't necessarily have to have seen the headline but you'll know the headline about two seconds later because you know somebody shouts it out you know that you you lose that connectivity but but by developing process and by by working through checklists, I think it, it becomes incredibly helpful. And then I think the final thing that, you know, I said, it, you know, what I've learned about myself, I think placing a huge emphasis on remaining mentally healthy. There's obviously a significant physical health concern across the world, and we all have to be very, very mindful and respectful of that. But also, I think the psychological impact of, of me sat here in my in my little office at home and missing out on the, on the personal interaction is something that 
but I do take seriously and and try and you know just recognize that and listen to one my my mind and listen to to my body and also encourage my my team to do the same. So you know we try and check in with one another. We develop processes. I think it's important to to really call out what's been a Herculean effort from from the engineering staff at Goldman because you know I can say for nothing you know my business has gone through a huge technological uplift led by our, our strats and, and, and tech team over the last couple of years. And it's a very, very operationally intensive business that wouldn't have been able to have functioned the way we have if we'd have lived through this, let's say, two or three years ago. So, you know, I, I would say that those are, those are my key takeaways. As it relates to like trading the markets, those we're able to do thanks to technology and will continue to do whether we do it in, in your log cabin or whether we do it we do it at 200 West Street, but but I, what, what's been most important to me has really been the continuing and enforcing the, the personal touch. All right. Well, Alex, thanks so much. A great discussion. Good to see your face. Thanks for joining us again. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jay. That's all for this week's Markets Update on Exchanges to Goldman Sachs. And in case you missed it, check out our other episode from earlier this week with Goldman Sachs CFO Stephen Schur and some other leaders across the firm. Thanks for listening and hope everyone is staying healthy and safe. This podcast was recorded on Friday, May 1st, 2020. Thank you. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.